We've uh, been spending three Sundays here, uh, journey preparation for our trip. Uh, we've essentially spent one Sunday where it's kind of, I might call it, we've oriented our compass. We set it on, this is all about seeing Jesus. And I'm going to say that again. This is all about, this whole series is first and foremost about seeing Jesus. That's where the compass is oriented on, and that's where we're going ultimately. Now, we did that. We also spent two Sundays kind of preparing for our arrival and also preparing for our functioning in the land of Revelation, and essentially three Sundays preparing for what is going to be next Sunday, the start of being in the throne room of heaven. And I'm telling you, I cannot wait. Ladies, Mother's Day in the throne room of heaven. That's a pretty cool place to be on Mother's Day in all reality. And so we're going to be there next Sunday. Now, one of the things that's going, I've been using this whole illustration of a tour and a tour bus. And I want to note, we're, on a, we're not on a bus trip where it's one way. We are on a bus tour. And whenever you go on a tour, you return from where you came from. In fact, those of us later this summer are going to be going to Scotland. We're going to be going up into the, the Northern Highlands, and we'll be taking a bus up there. And so I think in Edinburgh, we'll pick it up. And then you have this terrain you have to go through before you get to what is really the cool sites that ultimately you want to see. You just have to work through some of that terrain. Well, let me picture it this way. That's what chapters 2 and 3 are. Chapters two and three is the connecting terrain from where you load the bus to where all the really cool sights are. And Revelation, if you will, is kind of set up that way. So uh, chapter one is kind of the standing outside of the bus, getting everything ready for the trip. It's all about seeing Jesus, getting our minds around how we handle the word of God. And we're gonna, here in a couple minutes, we're gonna get on the bus. And then today, we're driving. And we're gonna be driving past seven local churches. And we're gonna be talking about those local churches as we go by. It's gonna be really fast, really quick quick. And uh, the reason for doing this is a couple years ago, we'd been through Revelation 1 through 3, and we had talked about every Sunday was a church. So I'm doing a summary. You can go online if you want, and you can listen to each one of those. But today's the connecting drive, because it's like, let's get to the really cool places. Okay? That's what's happening here. So sometimes you can look at chapters 2 and 3 and go, come on, John, this... Were you just like doing some literary doodling and, and like wasting my time or all of a sudden you're there about Jesus and now you're thinking about churches and it's like get on track? It connects chapter 1 to chapters 4 through 22. Chapters 2 and 3 are really, really important in the book structure here. Uh, we've been in the loading zone uh, we're on a connecting drive today past seven churches, and then after this Sunday, we are in like the land of wow, okay? That's what's happening. By the way, most likely at the end of our time in Wowville, which I don't know how long it's going to be, but it's going to be a bit, we're probably going to make a trek back through chapters three, two, and one to ground it all, because sometimes that can end up being ungrounded with where we're at today. So it's really, really important. Well, with that, Harvest, it's time to load the bus. You ready? Okay, time to load the bus. I don't know how we're going to fit in it, but we will. I love that bus. 
I'm having issues with that bus, <laughs> but we're, go we're going. We're going to the land of Revelation. Today, we're in uh, the connecting train of chapters two and three. We're going to drive by seven churches. And by the way, when I say that, you may be thinking, Doug, your whole illustration of loading and then the, un and then the, the really cool place, this, connect this is the time you sleep. Everybody knows that. No, no. Listen. We're about to talk about seven local churches, and you might be going, who cares? Let me answer that. The Father cares, the Son cares, the, the, the Spirit cares, the angels care, John cares, and the seven churches care. On top of that, you and I must care. We must care because these seven churches are really important to us. Basically, John gave messages to these seven local churches. He addressed them and talked with them. But while addressing them at the same time, he is essentially addressing us as well. And on top of that, local churches are comprised of followers of Christ. So if John, uh, if the Lord through John is addressing churches, that means he is addressing people in those churches. So this whole tour today is a lesson on what church should look like, should not look like, and what believers should look like and not look like. Okay, so it does matter to you and I. Now, uh, we're all in the van, right? Yes. Okay, we're all in the van. We're moving out. We're heading out. Now, whenever you do that, we've got a little bit of time here before we're going to cross Ephesus. So I want to take about 12 or so minutes here before we arrive to Ephesus. Just play with me. Right? You playing with me? Okay, you're with me? All right, we're on this, and it's going. I want to remind ourselves a couple things from last uh, Sunday and kind of do a little bit of practice in this. Number one, we talked about how we approach the text, how we approach the land of Revelation as we dive in, because friends, we are not just opening any book. It's not the Sunday newspaper. It's not the phone book. I know those aren't, don't exist anymore, but it's not a magazine. It's not those kinds of things, but here, let's remind ourselves, as we approach the land of Revelation, this is the Lord's book. It's the Lord's book. At Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, he is the source of it and he is the subject of it. Let's remind ourselves of that. It means it's from him and it's about him. And along with that, we've talked about how he intentioned this to be understood. A lot of times people are like, Revelation can't be understood. Well, then why did he write it? And why did he say, not say, that you can understand this? We may not understand every jot and tittle. We may not understand every little piece. But we're going to understand the big picture because he, God intentioned it to be understood. And along with that, as we approach the word of God, we are reminded that the Lord intentioned for it to change our lives. If we go into this book over the coming months and we come out of it unchanged, we've missed the trip. Okay, it's to change us. Lastly, as we approach this series, I want to remind us as we've talked about, we are doing a book of revelation study, not a systematic theology study of the end times of eschatology. This is just like we studied Colossians, like we studied Mark, we're studying Revelation, it's a book study. That's how we approach it. Secondly, how do we function in it? Let me remind us. Three frameworks. Number one, there's a historical framework. Let's remember that the Lord was working through the Apostle John to write this down. 
John, historically, he was exiled to the island of Patmos in chapter 1 on account of the word, on account of serving Christ. We are told that John is our brother and partner in suffering in the gospel. He's our brother and partner in the patient endurance, the text tells us. He's our brother and partner in the kingdom. It's about 95 AD. It's near the end of John's life. He's probably in his 80s at this time. He's worshiping on a Sunday, and the Lord shows up through one of his angels, and the angels tells him to write down what he's, he, he's seeing, what he's going to see, and what is in the future. And that's the sum of the historical framework. We enter in that context. There's also, I talked about, uh, an interpretive framework. There's different ways to people have approaching the whole book and how they order it up. And I've told you, just in our interpretive framework, we're, we're holding off on those discussions. Let's just go in it. Let's go in it and, and dive into it together and, and work it out and let's see what happens. Sometimes people who have been on bus tours in the past come and ruin the bus tour for everybody else by telling everything that they know. We don't want to do that. We want to come in here and see and let it grow and experience out. We're going to see the big things. We're not so caught in the small things. Remember, in the essentials unity, in the non-essentials liberty, and in all issues charity, we're entering with humility, we're entering with honesty, and we're going to learn and we're going to do this together. Textual framework. Historical framework, interpretive framework, textual framework. When you read, is there a shape to it? Is it moving in a certain way? Is it trying to help us just by how it's formed? And, and here's what I want to say. Chapters 2 and 3 have a clear literary structure that I want to show you. And I don't know, maybe this is going to make me a nerd. I sure hope not. But this is really cool. You have to see this because when you look on your page, you just go like from one to the next to the next to the next to the next. But there's a, a structure that's the same throughout. And I realize you can't read uh, the text on the screen. That's not the point. I want for you to see some things. These seven messages, I mean, a couple of them are about as long as a long text, right? I mean, these seven messages have set, are to seven churches. They have a structure. Here's the structure. First, they begin with, all begin with an opening address. In fact, look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write... Every one of them has that same statement to each of the churches along the way. There's an opening address. Secondly, uh, and it's Ephesians, Smyrna, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And then after the opening address, there's an attribute statement. Can you see the green in every one of those? This is the part that I love. In every one of these, it said, hey, to the church in Ephesus, uh, uh, I have something to say about me. By the way, all of this is, if you have a red letter edition Bible, all of this is, being, is in red. All of this is Jesus, the resurrected, magnified, glorified Jesus Christ, the Revelation 1-1. Him, he's the one speaking all of this. And he says, I have, I have something to say to you and you and you and you and you. And when he says that, he has an attribute about himself. And here's the cool thing. Every one of these attributes are unique and every one of them are built out of chapter one. 
Do you remember in chapter one when we read about, and you can look in the latter half, John turns to see the voice that's speaking to him, and he, and he talks about how he's in the midst of the lampstands, and a long robe, and sash, and hairs on his head are white, his eyes are like flaming, his feet are burnished bronze, his voice is like waters, his right hand yields the seven stars, his mouth is a sharp two-edged sword, his face is like the signing of the shun, uh, shining of the sun, and, and he goes on, and all of those attributes are pulled out and applied to each one of the local churches. It's really cool. And and I'll tell you why here in just a second. (laughs) And then after that, in every one of these letters, he says, I know, uh, the red. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, and I know. By the way, the word in the Greek for I know, there's different words for knowing. This is not the word or words that are used for kind of a, I've come to know. I've grown in a knowing. I've developed my knowing or someone has informed me of. The word here in the Greek, oida, has more of an idea of an absolute knowledge of. I know absolutely, fully, and perfectly. No one has to inform me. I know. And here's what's going. Hey, church, remember that there's something about me. And I want to say this to you. The one who has those attributes knows something about you. Because frankly, sometimes we're like, who cares who knows? No, no, no. This one in the green lettering cares and knows. And he has something to say. And it talks in the text, it talks about how he knows their settings. He knows if they're doing well. He knows if they're not doing well. He knows the solution to their problems. And by the way, every time the solution is repent. It's interesting. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of all things, is telling followers of Christ, redeemed ones in Christ, in his local churches, repent. Why are we so afraid of that word? Why do we so hide in the fact that we have issues, that we're all broken? Why do we have to put on a cover like that? Oh, I gotta tell you, I'm a senior pastor, and I just want for you all to know, I'm awesome. (laughs) Theologically, that is an utter lie. I sin. (gasps) Of course I do. And the Lord calls his people to be people that are repenters. That should be a trait of us. We're the people that repent, not only for salvation, but all the time. Oh, I'm getting stuck on that. We gotta keep moving, I love that. (laughs) Opening address, attribute statement, I know statement, and then they also have what I'm calling a universal command to hear. Verse seven, in fact, let me just read this. To the angel, chapter one, we'll do just to Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the golden lampstands. The attributes. And then he says, I know. I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. And I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but uh, have tested those who called themselves apostles and are not and, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and I know that you have not grown weary. Isn't that cool? Isn't it cool to know that someone knows even when you're weary? Isn't that cool? Uh, but by the way, in the knowing, verse four, it also includes, uh, but I have this against you. Ooh, that's pretty strong words. 
but I have this against you. Uh, I have this against you that I know that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. and Do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Basically, Jesus is saying, I will pull my presence. You may gather as a local church, but the fact of the matter is Jesus may have left the building. He, verse 7, this is the universal command, he, she who has an ear, let him, let her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pause there. Two cool things about that. One, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. It's, a, it's, an, it, it's an imperative form. You must do this. You must be hearing people. Are you? Before you answer that, are you? I mean, really, when you go through life and things are having a hard time at home or at work or, or, or situations are going on, you're struggling through and working through, are you a hearer? Do you want to hear what Jesus has to say? Do, 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 you, do you think back to his word? What does the Lord have to say? Because the Spirit of God generally works through the word of God. And where am I going to find out what Jesus says? I'm going to find out where Jesus is by coming back to the word. And so if I'm someone who is really all about hearing what the Lord has to say, then I'm going to be someone that's in where the Lord has to say. And by the way, not just on Sundays, but all the time. And I'm going to apply what the Lord has to say as I go through life. Are you a hearer? I just want to say, say thank you from my standpoint. I think this church is filled with people that want to hear and want to hear not what I have to say, not to hear not what you have to say, but want to hear what the Lord has to say. Let's keep it going. It's a command, and by the way, note, the end is plural. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see what's going on here is all these seven churches are supposed to hear what's being said to the other churches. Why? So that they can gossip about each other. No, no, that's not it. So, so it's like, you know, they're messed up there, that makes me feel better here. No, that's not what's going on. It's like because we can learn from one another. In fact, here in a few weeks, I'm going to be gathering together with about 12 other Harvest senior pastors in churches about our size, about our stage, for the sole purpose of getting together for about three days just to sit and talk and learn from each other. What are you learning? What's not going well? What are you struggling? What is going well? And helping each other. And we need to learn from one another and a universal command to hear, they all have that. And then tied to that, all seven messages have a call to be conquerors. You can see in the text kind of the blue there. It, it talks about how, how this idea of Jesus says, uh, verse 7, uh, to, to the one who conquers, I will. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of the life which is in the paradise of God. A call to conquer. It's a, I think Newer International Version says to overcome. It's really important to understand that that word is in what's called the present active continuous. In other words, it, it's not a one time you do. I kind of prefer the overcome because it feels more like a, a overcoming on a continual basis. In other words, don't be conquerors one and it's done and over. You are to be conquerors as a consistent ongoing trait of who you are. Conquering now, conquering today, conquering tomorrow, then the next day. Conquering today doesn't mean that we're overcoming tomorrow. It's to be present actively and continuous trait of us. We're, we're to be conquerors. We're to be victors. We're to be prevailers and overcomers and warriors. Hear me on this. Not escapees. 
not, not make it throughers, not existers. You see, in America, our first thing is, God, I pray that you take it away, the pain. And the Lord's sometimes like, no, 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 you're missing my ministry in this. In fact, we're going to see a couple churches that are in that. Where they're going through is part of how you show who I am in your life is by being someone that overcomes through troubles and problems of life. Conquerors. But also note, every one of these conquer overcoming statements has an I will promise attached to it. Verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, that that statement, conquer, is tied to what comes in chapters 4 through 22 every time. In other words, Jesus gives those who churches, those people that are overcomers, he gives them a unique promise tied to what he's going to be explaining in chapters 4 to 22. He says, listen, if you're, an over, if, you're, if you're an overcomer, I promise that you will be eating of the tree of life. Well, what kind of tree is it? Orange tree, fruit tree? No, no, missing the point. We're going to learn about it later. There's always a future promise tied to the present now. That's, guys, why we're doing the book that we're doing. We're going to be in this series, and we're talking about how eternity changes how we do life today. That's the literary structure. There's an opening address, an attribute statement, an I know statement, a a universal command to hear, and then a call to be conquerors that also contains a a, a set of rewards. You may be going, that's just literary structure. No, 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 this preaches. In fact, real quick, eight things it preaches. Eight. Eight things it preaches. Number one, Jesus loves the local church. And we need to hear that. Because there are a lot of people today, especially in our culture, where it's like, I'm so bagged out on the local church. The local church is unnecessary. Friends, then why is he writing this? Even to the churches that he is kind of disciplining. Listen, I'm in the local church until Jesus is done with the local church. But he's not done with the local church. And even if the people in the local church aren't acting like the local church, Jesus still loves the local church because he made it. And so we're a local church church because Jesus loves his church. Secondly, Jesus knows about all his local churches, big and small, as we'll see here in a little bit, rich and poor, busy, not busy. He loves them all, even when they're messed up. Third, the state of the local church is not about what you and I think. It's about what Jesus knows. And we need to be very humble about that, even here in this church. This is an awesome church. Question, would Jesus agree with that? That's what's front and center should be on our hearts and our minds. Fourth, all of Jesus' local churches have issues. There is no perfect local church church. There was not in 95 AD, and there is not in 215 AD. Okay? Every church is messed up, and we are one of them. It's true. Because broken people, redeemed, make up redeemed churches filled with broken, redeemed people. Fifth, who Jesus is 
drives everything. The whole thing that he states as attributes drives the whole thing. Why should I care what he says? Because of who he is. Why should I listen to what he says? Because of who he is. His attributes drive everything. Why should I bear up under this situation that I presently have in my life? Because of who he is. It drives everything. Sixth, Jesus is calling for his local churches to be filled with present, active, and continuous overcoming people. Not existing through people, not making it people, but overcoming people. Seventh, Jesus loves it when his people repent. Jesus loves it when his people and his churches repent. Why do we play the game with repenting? Jesus loves it. He loves it when his people repent. Number eight, Jesus promises eternal rewards for overcoming local churches and people. Friends, it's worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it. He will reward. Not just with eternity, but all that is of eternity. And we'll see that here in a little bit. Well, back to the tour. We're getting pretty close to Ephesus. With me? Getting pretty close to Ephesus. Seven local churches we're going to drive by here. And uh, I'm your bus tour guy. So everybody look out the left window. Come on, look out the left window. Everybody look left. Okay? We're coming up on Ephesus. You see it? Okay. Awesome. Work with me. Okay? That's perfect. Thank you. Let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus, the city of Ephesus here, and then the church of what's going on in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus. It was located at the mouth of the Caister River. It had the most important seaport in the province of Asia Minor. That's Turkey today, as you can see up on the map. Ephesus was a powerful city. It had 250,000 people. That's a quarter million people in its population of the city at the time. It was famous for its huge temple to the fertility goddess Artemis. And along with the whole temple, there literally were thousands of priests and priestesses associated with the temple in Ephesus. Not only did they have the temple to Artemis, but they had three other temples uh, to Roman emperors there in Ephesus. Basically, Ephesus was a, a center of the occult. It was a magnet for the occult. And if you were part of the occult or interested in the occult, you would take a tour there. That was Ephesus because it was a great city for that. It also, another key thing, was a city that had one of the most impressive libraries in the world at the time. That tells you a little bit about the place. It was a people that were about thinkers. They, they thought there was an academic bent. There was a, they were readers and kind of in, in a core of this whole city. And all of these have some implications on the kind of church that was in Ephesus. Let's talk about the church there. In Ephesus, it was established and grown through the uh, uh, individuals of Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Apollos was a part of things there. Paul was a part of things we see in Acts 18 and 19. John likely uh, came there after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and John had uh, likely was probably his home before he was sent to Patmos. 
Ephesus, the church there had become the most prominent of the seven churches. It was the most prominent, and in great reality, in part, because probably it planted the other six churches. Harvest, that's a big deal to us, because at Harvest, we have terminology we call, we want to be churches that plant churches. Ephesus was a church that planted churches, and that rings a bell for you and I. They were a church planting church. Along with that, think of it with the library aspect of things. They were a people that loved the truth. They were truth-loving people. Doctrine and thinking was very, very important. And we saw in the text there, they stopped false teachers, and, and it even said they had not grown weary in pursuing right doctrine. Uh, but the glorified, magnified Christ, also verse 4, said that he had something against them. And this is pretty serious. This church-planting church, this doctrinal-driven church, had lost the love. And as I've spent more time on this here this week, I think this has more to do with the practical outliving of love for other people. Yes, ultimately is a lacking in love for Jesus, but I think it's a lack of loving Jesus by not loving other people. And there's part of that that makes sense because when you get so down into the doctrinal depths of things, you get so in there, people become an annoyance, especially imperfect people. People who mess up. It's like, leave me alone. I want to talk and debate doctrine. And it's like, you, you've just lost sight of the fact that Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. Okay, I'm with that on the doctrinal part. The second one is love your neighbor as yourself. They are tied together. And the doctrine drives loving other people. Why? Because, oh yeah, that's right, Jesus did. Good Christology drives strong loving of other people. And they weren't. Doctrinally driven. But they lost their love. Hey, Ephesus, Jesus says, repent. I'm thrilled about your doctrine depth. You are power lifter thinkers. But Repent. Because you've lost your first love. Love truth, but love people. Both matter. He who has an ear, let him hear. Everybody look out the right window. Smyrna. Okay, we're passing by Smyrna. Let me tell you a little bit. It's about 35 miles from Ephesus. It's a city of Smyrna. It has the second busiest seaport in Asia. Ephesus had the first busiest. Its population was about 100,000. It was known as the ornament of Asia by some. In fact, some historians today view uh, uh, Smyrna as the most exquisite city that the Greeks ever built. They were a long ally of Rome. Uh, they were a center of emperor worship. In fact, they were called the temple warden was the term used for Smyrna in that area for emperor worship. They had temples to the goddess Roma and to Emperor Tiberius. There's a large Jewish population that had government approval to practice their religion, but the Christians didn't. Smyrna, this is very cool, is only one of two of the local churches lifted, listed that was not given a rebuke. It was not given a rebuke. How cool is that? And here's the cool part about it. This local church was poor. 
And yet, verse 9, Jesus says, you are rich. If you have Christ, I don't care what your bank account says, your 401k says, what your tax statements say. Know this, you are filthy, mega rich from an eternal perspective. They knew persecution and they knew suffering and slander. Yet Jesus was to be all they needed. Isn't that true sometimes where you're like, I, just, I need to get out of this. No, you don't need to get out of it. You need Jesus in it. He's all we need. Essentially, suffering was their call. And for them to be conquerors, it really meant you are going to live a life in suffering. And I'm not asking you to leave it and move to Ephesus. I'm asking you to stay there and to bear up under it. That's what overcomers do. Live the gospel out. And here in this uh, to Smyrna, the first and the last one, one of the attributes stated, promise them an eternal coming crown. Poor, but you're going to be crowned with an eternal crown. Hey, friends, the Lord will vindicate. The Lord is enough. The Lord will crown. Overcomers are faithful to death. He who has an ear to hear. third church, Pergamum. It's been about an hour because we're about 70 miles north of Smyrna. You doing okay? City sat about 1,300 feet above the plain of the Caicos River. We all know where that is. (laughs) Not. It was a powerful place. It was a political, it was an intellectual, it was a religious center. It had temples, altars, shrines to Zeus, Athena, and a bunch of other gods. It had the great altar of Zeus. In fact, the altar of Zeus there was 120 feet by 112 feet, and the, and the altar there was 18 feet high. I mean, this is like three foot up, 18 feet up. I mean, it was an impressive thing with the uh, altar for Zeus. If Christians refused to participate in these pagan events, uh, they were seen as godless and subversive. Uh, such pressers would force Christians that they would have to make a choice. Am I going to walk with Jesus or am I going to compromise? And compromise was the choice of some. And hear me on this. Compromise was the choice of some by redefining the gospel. Compromise became the choice of some by essentially rewriting the gospel. I'd term it this way. I think this is the best way. Some chose gospel light over the gospel. And hear me on this. Most of the gospel is not the gospel. Gospel light is not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ and all that it contains, the fact that we're all sinners separated from a holy God and only through Jesus Christ, only through Jesus Christ and receiving him, can we be able to have forgiveness and can we be sealed by the spirit of God and held for that? Listen, the, 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 the gospel is the gospel and some were embracing the gospel light. And yet here was the problem in the church there that, that, that while in some ways, uh, the one that will certainly come in the future who speaks absolute truth and precision 
vision, the one with the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, that's the attributes that Jesus uses with Pergamum. He, he says in this, listen, while most are holding true to the gospel, some of you are embracing gospel light, and the problem is, is that all of you don't really care. You see, this is the kind of situation, especially in our culture where we're so individualized. It's like, hey, if you want to go down gospel light trail, go, go dive, whatever. No, no, and Jesus is addressing this whole church because the most who were still on the gospel were not reaching out to love and grab the some who were leaving the gospel. And Jesus is like, I got an issue with that. It's not just the some, it's even the most. We're to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ enough and for the gospel enough that we'll reach out and we'll grab a hold of them and go after them because we love them and do so in a loving way. If it sounds like gospel truth, feels like gospel truth, looks like gospel truth, it does not mean that it is. Overcomers for Jesus Christ hold fast to Jesus Christ. They are contemporary without compromise. Fourth church, Jesus' church in Thyatira. Does that not sound like a disease in your neck or something? (laughs) 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, Thyatira was a radically diverse city. It was a city of considerable wealth. It had thriving commerce. It was a center for trade guilds. Each trade guild had its own patron god or goddess. And the trade guilds were the fabric of the city. You were a part of the city by being a part of a trade guild. And being that each trade guild had their own god or goddess, not the real god, you were forced in a situation, do I become a part of that? If I become a part of that, then um, I will have business and I will be able to continue in my career in, in this trade guild union. But if I don't, then... I'm in trouble and it affects my whole family. I think you could see the situation that they're in. The glorified, magnified Jesus Christ, the one, as the text says, whose eyes are like fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze, and who searches heart and mind, he knew their situation. And here's the interesting thing. This local church is kind of the opposite of Ephesus. They loved people, but they lacked discernment and doctrine. They loved people, but they lacked discernment and tolerated bad doctrine. I mean, they knew that uh, there was a particular person in their church that was teaching and seducing others. You can read it into heretical doctrines, and they failed to address her in love, as the text tells us. Instead, they were to 2 Timothy 2.25 in this situation, where it says, correct with gentleness those who are in opposition, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. But they didn't do that. They let it go. But Jesus didn't. Spiritual adultery is a big deal to Jesus. And he doesn't let it ride. He doesn't let it go unchecked. The fact is, is that there is an intolerant love by Christ. It loves But there's an intolerance for bad doctrine, for spiritual adultery. And his local church and his people should be that way. Listen, pour out love on one another, absolutely. But doctrine does matter. It really does matter. 
Let me sum it up so far. We've been by four. We'll pick the speed up with the last three. Number one, Ephesus, love truth and pour out love. Second, uh, Local churches that are overcoming and individuals that are coming are faithful unto death. And then third, hold fast to Christ. And fourth, pour out love and lovingly correct untruth. Fifth, we're in Sardis, 35 miles southeast of Thyatira. One person has said of uh, Sardis that uh, Sardis was a city with a golden pass and a misplaced security. It had a name, but it was all about what was in the past, not the now. You know what I'm talking about. When music used to be really good in the 70s, <laughs> or when church music used to really be good back in, you, you name the time. I get it. I get it. But this was a church that was stuck in that kind of stuff. Stuck in some of the items to where it was all about its name and its reputation. I mean, this was a city that was strategically per, uh, positioned in the Valley of Hermas where key roads converged. All roads, main roads came there. They were in a strategic position, but they were a, a church that had a long history and deep traditions, but its glory was in the past. And the one who has all glory and power said to this local church, you are all image, no substance. And I'm not about that. It was known for its church vitality. But Jesus knew it for its ineffectivity. This was not an effective church. They were busy, busy, busy with all their little churchy activities and their wonderful little get-togethers, but they were spiritually unconscious. They forgot that they were in a war, spiritual war. And they were all happy just being happy and making muffins together doing whatever thing was their thing. And they forgot the war, and they forgot the one who would speak out the overcomer's name. And he calls them to wake up and to remember and to repent. Conquerors are wide awake for Jesus. Wide awake. Two more. Church in Philadelphia, 35 miles southeast of Sardis. Attilus Philadelphius. Something like that. King of Pergamum built this city. It was the youngest and the smallest of the seven cities. It was a city built up for preserving and spreading the Greek language and culture. Its patron god was Dionysus, the god of wine. And there was a strong Jewish population. And as a result, this local church experienced great persecution, not from the government, but from other religious, we'll call them other religious organizations. Like Sardis, Jesus speaks only words of commendation to them. There's no rebuke to the church in Philadelphia. This little country church, no rebuke. Small country church, here's the fact. They would never grow large. They would never have a big, beautiful building. They would never have a big, boasting budget. Yet the Lord encouraged them to persevere. Isn't that cool? The Lord loves little churches. It's not about becoming a big church. We want more. I want little churches to have more. But more glory and more people and more change for the glory of Jesus Christ more. Not more bragging rights. Not more impressive rights. Overcomers. 
and overcoming churches are big on ministry faithfulness and they're little on ministry impressiveness. They're big on ministry faithfulness and they're little on ministry impressiveness. Last church, Laodicea. Last church, everybody. This is the last one. Guess what's coming after this church next week? We are in the throne room of heaven. And it's a crazy cool waterfall and mountains. I don't know, something like that. Okay, it's just a cool place where we're going. Here we are, Laodicea, and I hate to say this, but we're kind of ending uh, uh, not so happy. Laodicea, it was a city that was named after Antiochus II's wife. Okay, trivia question. What was Antiochus II's wife's name? <laughs> you guys are way better in first service. First service, they had to take a little bit. <laughs> okay, yes, it was Laodicea was her name. That was the city. Uh, Laodicea was a center for banking. And by the way, if this goes online, I uh, love you, first service. Uh, uh, Laodicea was a center for banking and medicine and textile production. Its two sister cities were Colossae, that's familiar, and Hierapolis. Religiously, it had a mixture of local and Roman gods. It had a large Jewish population that had much influence. And hear this, the Laodiceans were, uh, this is my own words, much like America, they were self-dependent and self-satisfied. The church matched their culture, like so many of the seven did, really. And here the glorified, magnified Jesus Christ does not list one strength, not one. In fact, there's not even a mention of a hit, hint of a faithful minority. Instead, the Revelation 1, Jesus lays out the severest of condemnations given and is given in verse 17. Listen to this. He is saying to this to his church and to his people. He says, you wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked local church. These are his people. And Jesus is not so happy. You wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked local church. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Wow. It was an affluent church. And they loved their stuff. They loved their buildings, they loved their budgets, they loved their programs, they loved their personal comforts, and they loved their personal peace. Just like the world around them. For them, Jesus was a means to their own end. Jesus was just another line item in their portfolio. Jesus was an insurance policy. And the glorified, magnified Jesus does not play that religion game. He knows who's lukewarm. He knows who's cold. And he knows who's smoking hot. He knows whose heart is works void of worship. He knows who's about a little God and a big them. And the one who grants seating with him on the throne calls them to repent. Laodicea, overcomers repent and get hot. Overcomers repent and get hot for the Lord. I'm sorry I didn't have a slide with all these up there for you. It was late into last night. 
and uh, didn't have it together. So let me just verbally walk this here. Overcoming local churches love truth and pour out love, are faithful unto death, hold fast to Jesus Christ, pour out love and lovingly correct untruth, are wide awake for Jesus, are big on ministry faithfulness and little on ministry impressiveness, and repent and get hot. I, I, I pray we never get satisfied. By the way, I, I can't leave you with all that. I have to also leave you with the promises. You can just listen to them. Be encouraged. The magnified, glorified, Revelation 1, Jesus Christ, promises overcomers, one, the eternal tree of life, two, an eternal crown, three, an eternal name, for an eternal seat. Five, to be named before the Father of Christ. By the way, love this one the most. Okay, real quick. Hey, ladies, what's that English popular show? The, the, Downton Abbey, okay? Downton Abbey, I've watched it. Just lost my man card. But I've watched it. I literally like it. I just don't remember the name of it. So what they would have at the get- gatherings when they come together and like important couple comes to the, to the front and there's the butler dude standing there and he goes, I would like to present to you Mr. and Mrs. This is so cool because that's what's gonna happen if you are in Christ and the one here is not just some like schmuck butler. It is the revelation one magnified, glorified Jesus Christ. And he will be there and is like, Father, I would like to introduce to you your name. Is that not rock? Absolutely. I love that. To be named before the Father by Christ. You check it out in the passage. Then six, an eternal tattoo. Hey, you tattoo folks. Know this, Jesus is going to tattoo you with a unique name. I'm saving my body for it. (laughs) Uh, TMI. (laughs) Okay, but that's what it talks about Uh, in there. And the last one, sorry, I got to finish. There will be a seat on the eternal throne with Christ. Hey, today, maybe the one thing you needed to hear, maybe you're going through hard times. And you just feel like either Jesus has just junked you and just tired of you, or you're just like there's no hope in it. Know this. He knows. He knows the situation. He knows the situation. He knows everything down to the details. And he's seeking to call you to grab a hold of his attributes and respond according to who he is, not who you are. And he wants you to over, be an overcomer. Not for your glory, but for his. Not for your glory, for his. Not for your ease, but for his glory. That's chapters two and three.